Hey there, listeners. Welcome to Horror Movie Club, the show where two dudes who are not quite nerds but not quite noobs choose a horror movie each week to rate and review. I'm Brian, I'm on the phone with Ashvin, and today we are discussing Christine from 1983. Directed by John Carpenter, with a screenplay by Bill Phillips based on the novel by Stephen King, starring Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, and Alexandra Paul. In this film, a teenage boy becomes obsessed with his car, and we soon find out the obsession goes both ways. If you're new to this show, we are going to have a spoiler-free discussion for the first 15 or 20 minutes, but after that, we'll play some transition music, and that's when you know we're heading into spoiler territory. At that point, we'll walk through the plot in detail, and we will review the film. Uh, So yeah, Ashwin, you've never seen this one, right? Never seen it, and uh, I think I've partially read the book growing up, but uh, not the full thing. How about you? Uh, no, never seen it, never read the book. And actually, I don't know if you know the full story behind this, but a few weeks back, I had our friends on the Discord server vote for which movie they'd like us to cover, and the choices mm-hmm. were Last House on the Left, Salem's Lot, Christine, or the others, and they could vote with a little emoticon reactions. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christine was actually third place behind Last House and the others, but oh. one of our users, Tyler LaHousse, kept campaigning for Christine by reacting to all of my announcements with a car emoji. <laughs> and he persisted, and I was so charmed by it that I thought maybe I should cover Christine anyway. And then nice. he persisted to the point where I need to cover Christine just to get him to stop. <laughs> it's just gone stop from charming to <laughs> seeing them in my dreams. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah, way to go on uh, on getting us to pick this. Um, and so we did Last House on the Left, and are you going to hold off on the others for a minute? I think, I'll, yeah, I'll hold off, but I'd like to cover it. Almost no one voted for the Salem's Lot original, so maybe I'll just watch that by myself to be more informed for the Salem's Lot remake that's coming out later this year. Okay, and Salem's Lot's also Stephen King, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Cool. Uh, we've covered like a number of his film adaptations, haven't we? Uh, I think so, but I feel like we there's still a lot more to get to. So many. Yeah, I know. I, I can't think of a writer who's had more uh, adaptations than him. Yeah, right? It's wild. Yeah. Um, also, we should say we're back in our normal recording situations. And I don't even know if we <laughs> mentioned it on the I Know What You Did last summer, Ashvin, but we were together for uh, our, to celebrate our four-year anniversary podcasting in person a little early. So oh, we, yeah. We got an Airbnb halfway between the two of us, and that's why things sounded different on that episode. I know we right. mentioned we were in person, but people might be wondering what's going on. <laughs> what's with that one episode where you guys hung out and then... <laughs> and then it's going to be even to weirder because in like... Two more episodes, they're going to hear the anniversary episode where we're back in yeah. person. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, interesting uh, split on, on the timeline there. Yes. Um, well, you know what? I forgot. Oh, oh go ahead. Oh, but, but I, I think one other thing to call out about on the whole in-person thing is this is the first horror film you and I watched together oh. in how many years? Was it like... I think we determined 20... it had been seven years since the two of us had watched a horror movie together in person. Right. (laughs) Which is sad. I know, I know, considering we've had this club. And then it's kind of awkward while watching this because, like, uh, we were kind of reserved in, like, how much of our feedback we'd say during the film, right? Because we wanted to save it for this episode. Yeah, and then we also, like, I think normally we both kind of, like, pause to take notes and stuff, but we weren't taking any notes. So this is, (laughs) we'll see how this episode turns out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, did we have subtitles on? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I usually watch it subtitles, so that was, that was a nice change of pace. Yeah, I've been trying to do it less. I, I Normally I need them, but I have my TV set up so that it goes to my headphones now, so I feel like if it's in my ears, I don't need the um, closed caption as much. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I know, I, th- I think sometimes in comedies, and even like horror films, I guess, sometimes you read the subtitles and it gives away like the delivery of what someone's saying or the impact of it. Right, yeah, yep. Um, so let's see, this is the fourth John Carpenter film we've covered. We did The Thing last year, and in 2018 we did Halloween and They Lived. And it's kind of uh, pertinent that we're doing this episode because on our last episode of a John Carpenter film, which was on The Thing, we talked about how that movie was a box office flop and it caused Carpenter's reputation to take a hit and he kind of 
thinks of it as a turning point in his career where some some things that could have happened for him didn't happen. Um, I say all this because King, another King act adaptation was in the works, uh, and that was Firestarter. And Carpenter was going to direct that, but I read that they removed him from the project after the thing flopped. And that freed oh, him up to right. work on this, to work on Christine. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't realize why he got pulled off of that. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, I saw varying reasons of why he pulled off. Like somewhere I saw that it was just the production had stalled for various reasons, but somewhere else I saw that he was taken off due to the the fact that the thing did not succeed. He really took a hit on the thing, unfortunately, which, yeah, I mean, like, how many years later, it's, like, one of the most, like, uh, like one of the best-regarded horror films by a lot of people. So wild it's, how that surprising. happens, man. I wonder what ha- yeah. what's happening today like that. I know, yeah. <laughs> what movies from the past yeah. three years or so will be pointed to as classics that we all just thought were kind of fine when they came out. Maybe, like, Choose or Die on Netflix. <laughs> That's going to be <laughs> the next big thing. Um, yeah. The uh, and and uh, on your point there, it sounds like when he joined this project, it wasn't necessarily that he was like passionate about the storyline or anything, but it was more of like a career move where he felt like he had to do this to kind of rebuild his stock. Yeah, yep. And I think it was yeah, it was a job. So he said he wasn't wild about the novel, but this movie is just something he needed to do for his career, like you said. I love uh, hearing that in like the art industry that there are people who like do those kind of things because I mean I feel like so many of us do that with uh, careers and stuff we like take a job or do a project because we, we're not crazy about it but it's going to help our career so it's cool to see the parallel of that in in like Hollywood yeah sure right that that actually is kind of humanizing yeah definitely um, and and uh, I mean would you say like this kind of brought like built back the credibility that he was going for. I'm not sure. I mean, I think it had decent reviews. It, it weren't they weren't amazing reviews. And then it was a budget of ten million and a box office of twenty million. So that isn't necessarily great at the box office. Um, I know. Yeah, pretty low. Yeah, yeah. Considering that budget, so I'm not sure that this really helped him much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. I can't. I can't tell. I uh, so, Yeah. Looking at his filmography, I, I wonder when. His comeback was then was it like um I don't know I can't I can't imagine like they live was a big one it was like B- big trouble in little China like a huge success or was it like until escape from LA or was it just like people needed like 20 years to realize how great these films were I think maybe some people see this as like the beginning of his decline but I really uh was kind of rushed in my prep for this episode so I didn't get a good John Carpenter refresher on the chronology of his films Okay, okay. Yeah, They Live was, what I feel like They Live was like 1988. Yeah, exactly. So, and he made Mouth of Madness after this. I can't remember when Prince of Darkness was, but I I think Mm -hmm. that he still had a career that a lot of people enjoy and admire the movies he made, but I think he could have been considered for many more, like, bigger productions uh, had the thing taken off. Yeah, I know. That's wild. Maybe, yeah. yeah, maybe he was just ahead of his time or something. I think so. I think he was. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of The Thing, the special effects supervisor named Roy Orbegast, who worked on The Thing, also worked on this movie. So that was a handy uh, person to know from The Thing because there's some pretty intense special effects work in this movie. Uh, a yeah. lot of car-like crumpling and uncrumpling. And apparently they had... Uh, internally mounted hydraulics inside the car that like crumpled the car and then Mm -hmm. they played that backwards to make it look like the car was rebuilding itself oh that's so cool yeah i think that was one thing i mean we did share our thoughts a little bit together as we were watching this movie and we were both in awe of the special effects with this film yeah they held up like what uh what it were like yeah 30 some almost 40 years later yeah, they look pretty good, um, and yeah, that, that's so cool because like, one of the things from the thing we really liked was the special effects and what it's known for. Right, so exactly. Having the same guy. So that yeah, maybe the sense. thing did not do great for his career, but it and it informed this movie in in many ways. So, yep. Uh, and then the novel was published the same year as this, which was super fast. Um, so the reason the film got to market the same year is that the producer Richard Kobritz 
had worked on the Salem's Lot miniseries. There's Salem's Lot again. So he already knew Stephen King, and King sent him manuscripts for Cujo and Christine. And Cobritz loved how this Christine story dealt with America's obsession with cars, so he bought the rights to it, and filming began only days after the novel was published. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, because that's good he got the manuscripts early, because I feel like if he got the book when it came out, it would have been like another year that it would have taken him to read that book, (laughs) just because King doesn't know how to like write a short novel very well. I wonder how long Christine was. I'm noticing you've got a lot of half-finished books in your past. (laughs) They're all Stephen King. His his books are just like way too long, man. (laughs) I need to to read a King book again. It's been a while. Did you, you read what, like The Shining? I read The Shining, Misery, and a book of his short stories. I feel like it was called Night Shift or something, but I, I need to read more. Okay. Oh, I read Dr. S- no, I didn't read Dr. Sleep. Never mind. Okay, yeah. Yeah, th- those are hard books to get through. I feel like I tried It uh, also very... I, I th- that might be one of his longest ones. I think It is especially long, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I I love the short story collections. Those are good, like uh, like the one you mentioned. I, I think I had one called Skeleton Crew, which some have turned into like uh, creep show sequences. Or I think the Mist came out of that one as well. Oh, nice! So he, when he does these short stories, it's it's pretty tight. Oh, the Mist would be fun to cover on this sometime. Yeah, that would be a great one. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So yeah, we said it it was a budget of ten million, made twenty million at the box office. The Rotten Tomatoes critic score is sixty nine percent, viewers are at sixty four percent. The score was done by John Carpenter himself, as frequently is the case, and his frequent collaborator Alan Howarth. And let's see. They bought twenty four cars for this movie in various states of disrepair to be used as Christine. And there's a remake on the way, of course, because there's a bunch of Stephen King remakes on the way. <laughs> of course. Uh, there wasn't a whole, again, I was a little rushed with my research, but there wasn't a whole lot of background info out on this movie. Did you find anything interesting that we haven't covered? Uh, no, I think a lot of the actors and actresses, um, it was like maybe their first big film production or um, like especially like the young cast. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they had too much behind them at this point. Yeah, and our young, uh, our two stars, Keith Gordon and John Stockwell, they both like they were in some stuff. Um, Keith Gordon, who plays Arnie, was in Jaws two, Dressed to Kill, and Back to School. Um, but he's more prolific as a director these days, and specifically a director of TV. Oh yeah. So mm-hmm. ten episodes of Dexter, six of Homeland, four of Fargo, a lot of other one-off episodes here and there. Yeah. Oh, that's really cool. And then John um, Stockwell, who played Dennis, uh, directed Blue Crush, Touristas, right. and a few other TV episodes. Yeah, I thought that, I've never seen a film where like your two actors have gone on to do more directorial work than yeah. acting work. That's, right? interesting. that's interesting. And uh, Alexandra Paul, who I think is the female lead in this, um, I think this was her first American film, um, and she's gone on to have quite a career as well. Nice, nice. And then it was also shot, I think this movie was shot in a similar neighborhood as Halloween, like somewhere in South Pasadena. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess there's a little bit of a similar vibe. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, not to the movie itself, but to the setting. To the setting, right. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Um, But no, that's that's all the other background I had. All right. Well, I'm going to hit the Ohio connection. Every uh, movie we watch, our friend Alex connects to our home state of Ohio for us. Alex owns a jukebox bar and restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio, so if you're in the area, swing by for some delicious food and drinks. And Alex says, Christine is a supernatural horror film directed by John Carpenter about teenager Arnie Cunningham after he buys a classic red-and-white 1958 Plymouth Fury named Christine, a car that seems to have a mind of its own. Among the film stars is longtime character actor Roberts Blossom in the store in the role of George LeBay, the person who sells Arnie the Chrysler Fury. Roberts Blossom should be recognizable to many as Old Man Marley, Kevin McAllister's, McAllister's scary neighbor in the first Home Alone film. His first, his career, which spanned over forty years, included notable films: The Last Temptation of Christ, The Range, Escape from Alcatraz, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Roberts Blossom was raised in Cleveland and Shaker Heights, Ohio. Whoa, that's awesome. I didn't Great. realize he was a Cleveland neighbor. Me cool. neither. Great connection, because when we were watching this together, we both shouted out, hey, it's the Home Alone guy. <laughs> the Home Alone guy, yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. Hey, what, one other thing uh, that that reminded me of um, the 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 make and model of this car. I think when we, you and I were watching it, we commented like, "There's no way this is actually like a, a real brand or a real uh, car manufacturer," just because of the negative press that 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 might have gone towards uh, this uh, whoever the manufacturer was. But it sounds like it actually was like a Plymouth. Yeah, uh, it so was. It, it, so yeah, it was a legit car, huh? Yeah, I wonder what if there was any like, uh, hey, don't use our car to kill people, or if it was <laughs> yeah. just whatever. I know, I know. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing. And uh, yeah, I wonder if it being like an antique makes it easier, or yeah, I, I don't know. Right, that's, that's really true. I mean, this was. I don't even know. Yeah, they still. This was what, twenty five years later. So yeah, that was like a fifty seven. Yeah. I imagine in the remake, it's going to be like a Toyota Corolla from like 1999 <laughs> or a Camry. It's like a super pragmatic early 2000s car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A Saturn or something. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay, buddy. Well, are you ready to start spoiling stuff and walk through the plot and review the movie? Sure. Let's do it. Okay. You know what, though? I was actually washing my car before we started recording. And I just remember that I left the garage door open. Let me go uh, close that up and I'll jump right back on with you. Is that all right? Yep, sounds good. Okay, cool. Be right back. All right. Okay, man, I'm back. Hey, you closed the garage? Uh, not in time. Um, so sometimes I, I talk to my car a little bit, I'll, I'll be honest. Mm-hmm. And uh, I told it, hey, look, I'm sorry I couldn't finish vacuuming your interior tonight, but I'm on the phone with Ashvin. And as soon Uh-oh. as I said that, it just sped out <laughs> of my off. garage, <laughs> out of my driveway, and, and started heading east oh, on man. the interstate. So, so I've got uh, like about seven hours. Yeah, I was going to say, after we wrap this episode, you... <laughs> Might want to make sure you're in a safe place. Yeah, where, which I don't know where a safe place is anymore after seeing this film. It Maybe was, high up. Yeah, somewhere at some elevation. Yeah, I don't know, man. This car did some crazy things. This guy, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're probably fucked. Yeah, <laughs> machine of death. So let's make this episode count. Yep. <laughs> Okay, so the film opens on a car assembly line in 1957 where a 1958 Plymouth Fury is being assembled. A worker who is checking under the hood gets his hand abruptly smashed when the hood crashes down, and another worker who sits in the car and ashes his cigar in there gets murdered by the vehicle. Um, And Ashwin, what did you think of this opening? Uh, I thought it was kind of dumb and anticlimactic without suspense, and the idea that like it just like it slammed uh, someone's hand and killed someone because they uh, put some ashes on the uh, on the driver's seat just uh, seemed kind of silly to me. But w- what did you think? It's an ornery vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, I I mean, I will I will say this in the opening scene. I always like thought of this movie like how can a car be creepy, but. The fact that this car, it does this here, and it, it tends to do this throughout the movie, plays 1950s music on the radio that kind of applies to the situation at hand, that <laughs> um, seems to be like communicating with people, it it's kind of creepy. So mm-hmm. I didn't mind this scene because it was like, oh, hey, this car can actually be creepy. Yeah, yeah. But in hindsight, for the film in general, I think more suspense might have been created if you didn't have this scene. I know, yeah. I don't feel like they added too much to the story, and I don't think the original story actually the car like when it's made is like possessed. I think it like happens like from the the first owner or something. So right. Like this, the this, the right? first owner possesses the car in the book. Right, but in this one, it's like showing the cars like possessed right off the factory line. Um, right, which is something I, I, less scary about that. Exactly, exactly. But I, I, I do love like the musical cues there of, of like the 50s music kicking in. But yeah, the suspense didn't feel, uh, it, it just didn't feel like there was an atmosphere here. Sure, I agree. Um, we fast forward to the present in 1978 and we meet two close friends. Arnie, who is a bit of a nerd, and Dennis, who is a football player and more popular. And they spend some time developing the friendship. I really liked how authentic their relationship was. And the actors had good chemistry, 
And I kind of like it when stories focus on male friendships to the extent that it almost serves as like the romantic through line of a film. But what did you think of the early scenes developing their friendship? I agree. There's nothing better than like a, a buddy scene, right? Um, it, that's great to see two, two dudes like hanging out and like the dynamic between them is so interesting. Cause like, uh, I mean, was it, was it believable to you that these two were friends given like one's like a star football player and the other is like the extreme opposite in every way? Yeah, that was believable to, believable to me. I feel like there were, in, I can think of interest instances like that in my school. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, be, because of their opposites, you kind of know like that they have a, like, a long history. Like the only thing that can explain that is they must have grown up together or something. Right. 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 And yeah. And so when I think of some of the kids I went to school with, those are typically the situations. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I did like that. That, that, that was a really cool uh, dynamic. And, and I like that they brought those two together as like your main characters. Same. Uh, so there's a scene where Arnie is getting bullied in shop class and Dennis tries to step in to help. And it's revealed that one of the bullies has a knife. The bully hides the knife when a teacher intervenes, but Arnie and Dennis squeal on him, letting the teacher know he indeed has a knife. And the bully consequently gets expelled. So I don't know if it's as much of a Stephen King trend as I think it is. Maybe it's just that I've seen it in It, and I want to say Stand By Me, but I feel like it's a knife-wielding bully. It's just a very Stephen King thing to put in a movie. Yeah, totally. And yeah, why why do you think that is? Is it just like uh, he thinks like bullies are like the scariest thing uh, in in like suburbs or something? Yeah, and I I don't know. I think like his uh, a lot of what he writes seems to be like coming up in the fifties type stories, and I feel like a greaser with a switchblade is like the ultimate fifties <laughs> villain. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the good days. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so later, Arnie comes across a red car for sale that's totally beat up, and he falls in love with it and buys it, even as Dennis is urging him not to waste his money on this hunk of junk. Uh, he buys it from the Home Alone salt shoveler. Were and, you, uh, or were you on board with like how quickly Arnie falls in love with this car? Hmm. Yeah, sure. Because I feel like that's kind of the movie. Oh, okay. Like, I mean, do you think it was something in Arnie or like, was that like some kind of magical power the car had? Like it's, it's like kind of possessive power that targeted Arnie and brought him in. I think maybe it was a little bit of both. Okay. Like the, the magic, the, the magic of the car, like finding, finding someone who's vulnerable and needs it. Yeah, sure. Okay. A, a, a symbiotic relationship there. Yeah. I mean, there's a quote later from Arnie where he says, like something to the extent of the first for the first time in my life, I found something uglier than me, and I know mm-hmm. I can fix her up. So, yeah. I think they kind of spoke to each other, or maybe Christine sensed the desire in Arnie, something like that. Sure, I'd actually okay. like to read this. There's some Stephen King movies I watch where I'm like, okay, now I don't really need to read the book, but this one I'd be interested to read. I bet there's a lot more going on here. Mm-hmm. Probably, yeah, I imagine. So Arnie gets home after having purchased the car and gets in an argument with his overbearing parents about it. They won't let him keep it in their driveway, so he's keeping it at a do-it-yourself repair garage where he's doing work on it to get it back into shape. And Arnie's parents really are jerks. They're unkind to Arnie. They're unkind to Dennis. And Dennis always has to sit there and just endure these awkward family fights. And Mm -hmm. I think after this one, he's just like standing there alone with Arnie's mom and he's like, well, thanks for the milk. <laughs> Steps out the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so Dennis is kind of being framed as this loyal, trustworthy friend who's just there with Arnie no matter what, right? Like these knife fights, his parents screaming at him. Um, right. So again, I found their friendship to be very charming. Yeah, and pretty believable. Yeah. And so as Arnie's spending time working on his car over the next days, weeks, whatever, he starts to become extremely obsessed with it. He also starts acting cooler, I guess you could say. He's not wearing his glasses anymore. <laughs> He's got a leather jacket. He starts dating the new girl at school that all the cool guys wish they were dating. And he also starts to become a very big jerk to both to Dennis and his parents. Does this remind you of like Spider-Man 3 where Tobey Maguire like kind of becomes emo when he becomes Venom? Do, do you remember that? All the <laughs> memes around that? Yeah, it is a little bit like that. Yeah, just becomes like an asshole, like overnight, loses the glasses, starts dressing different. Right. I wonder if Christine was the inspiration. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, both his parents and Dennis are concerned about Arnie's behavior, and Dennis confronts him about his obsession with his car and the way he's acting. And apparently the car, uh, Christine, does not like that Dennis intervene because when Arnie parks at the football game to watch Dennis play, Dennis gets a very intense hit from another player that causes him to be pulled out of the game and need hospitalization for what seems like weeks, right? He's in the yeah. hospital for quite some time. Wait, you're tying, you're tying that event to Christine? Oh, man. I, I have a bullet point under here where I say, Ashvin, is it safe to assume Christine caused this big hit to happen? Because after the Friday the 13th Part 7, I'm not sure what kind of su- supernatural powers you're able to pick up on. Yeah, yeah Christine don't... caused that to happen. How? <laughs> it's a story about a magic car that does bad things to people. It it does bad things to people, but like usually by like hitting them or like running into them or or like uh, causing them to like suffocate within the car, not by like how how would it cause like a footballer to get uh, attacked or tackled by uh, another footballer? How does it do anything? It does. Well, yeah, yeah. So it's not magic. <laughs> yeah, one footballer to another footballer. It, it's definitely like possessed. <laughs> it, it, it has magic, but I think it's like controlled to itself. Like I don't think it can really like control the world around it. Like I, I don't think it can, um, yeah, uh, control other people. Well, ah, that's yeah, because it does kind of control Arnie, right? That's, yeah, that's just really fascinating. But you're like a hundred Like, how are you so convinced that that was tied to that? I just feel like the camera and the score gives you context clues of what's actually happening. Ah, okay, okay, context clues. And I mean, and when it comes in the story, like, Dennis had just confronted him about Christine, and Christine could tell, like, hey, Dennis is the biggest threat, Arnie spends time with Dennis, Dennis doesn't like me, he thinks Arnie shouldn't be around me, Right. I'm going to take Arnie out of the situation. Yeah, it's just that when when it takes other people out of the situation, it does so it's itself like through uh, man on car action. Um, this to one, an like, extent, man- but I mean, it, we'll we'll soon find out how it makes things happen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, like you said, normally it's within the car. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to put this question out to the Discord or to to listeners to to weigh in on whether this accident was caused by Christine or not. Okay, we'll uh, tell you what we'll we'll pin this question to uh, Tyler. Okay. Tyler, who, who's been requesting. We'll make but, him the man to answer it. All right, sounds good. Um, okay, so by the way, at some point in the plot, we learn that the last owner of the car killed himself in the car. His five-year-old daughter choked to death in the car. So there's the car making somebody choke inside the car. Mm. Oh, His yeah. wife killed herself in the car as well. Hmm. So it's starting to become clear that the car gets people out of the way that come between it and its owner or that it punishes people that do not treat it or its owner well. And this does not bode well for the bully that Arnie and Dennis got expelled earlier in the film. He breaks into the do-it-yourself garage one night with his gang of thugs and they destroy Christine. However, Christine repairs herself and runs them all down. Uh, and this is kind of a fun sequence. It includes Christine partially destroying herself to fit through a narrow alley to ram a thug against a wall. Uh, she explodes an entire gas station and emerges from the flames to run over the head bully. Uh, various other car coming to life shenanigans. It, it heals itself and rebuilds itself in multiple scenes. And I was actually pretty wowed by a lot of this stuff, like the gas yeah. station scene. And Christine chasing this guy while she's on fire. It just looked yeah. really cool. And as we were watching this, we still should have checked. I, I doubt it was 4K, but um, Ashwin was like wondering if we were watching a 4K movie. And actually, the Airbnb where we were in had a really nice TV, but it looked great. We were watching this on Netflix, and I think we were both stunned by how good it looks. Yeah, that looks it looks great, and those are great visuals. And yeah, I think I think you're kind of going through this film thinking like, how scary could a car be, and like how scary can an attack from a car be? But those like two kills that really like kind of prove you wrong. Like the suspense, the build up, like the fierceness of it, they, it really translates. I agree. I agree. I, I think that all the well, most of the car stuff was shot really well. It was directed really well. And the, yeah, the special effects team did an amazing job because mm-hmm. those scenes where it rebuilds itself, they look great. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't look uh, cheesy or anything. It's good. Yeah. Um, Christine then returns to the shop completely burned. 
The shop owner sees this and becomes extremely curious and opens Christine's driver's side door to find nobody is operating the vehicle. Puzzled, he sits down inside and Christine moves the seat forward so far into the steering wheel that the shop owner is crushed to death. And when the bodies of the shop owner and the bullies are discovered the next day, the police start to become suspicious of Arnie. Uh, after all, a dead body was found in his car, and his car was reported as being at the site of the bullies' deaths. However, Arnie's got a solid alibi. He was home with his parents, I think. Uh, they can vouch for him. And the car may have been there, but he wasn't. Arnie's girlfriend, Lee, becomes concerned and starts to think he's spending too much time with the car. Uh, Christine, of course, is threatened by Lee, and at a drive-in movie, she locks Arnie out of the car and causes Lee to nearly choke on the food she's eating. Luckily, a stranger intervenes and saves her life. Um, that's another instance where Christine causes something to happen just seemingly by, like, telekinesis. Mm, like a It is someone like... within her, but yep. still. I see. Yeah, that's actually a good point. Uh, yeah. Maybe she can control herself and food, and, like, those are her limits. <laughs> and footballers. <laughs> yeah, and footballers. <laughs> and the trajectory of football. Uh, I, <laughs> did you like that drive-in scene? I, I thought, like, the, the music there, again, like, the cue was really cool, and the way, like, the light comes on and the hard rain coming down on the car all, like, set up for a great visual. But what, what did you think? I agree. And had I watched this by myself, I would have been taking notes of all the lyrics that were coming up and the music that Christine plays and all the songs that were played because they're really kind of ominous and eerie and... Lee yeah. at one point says, why does it only play those old songs? Like it only right. plays cars or songs from the time period where it was made. Um, right. And they're just like very threatening or ominous or sometimes they'll like be displaying affection for Arnie with the lyrics of the song. Yeah. Uh, it's very cool. It's it's weird how effectively creepy a car is in this movie. It's cool. Did this bother you though? Because yeah, she she mentions that like sometimes when we're making out, it just stalls or like it plays these weird songs. Um, we never really see that happen. So we're going off of like her saying it. Did that bother you? Like, would you have liked to see that happen versus like just hearing her kind of like when she's going off on Arnie, saying like this is everything that's wrong with your car? I think that yeah, it might have been a stronger movie. I think maybe you could have replaced that opening scene where they. We see Christine kill the factory workers with stuff like that. Like maybe that yeah. could have been our first clue as to something being up with this car. Yeah, right. I like that. Yeah, and I'm sure the book has that a little bit more. But uh, here, I just feel like they jumped to like the conclusion that that that's happening. Yes. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So Lee is suspicious of the car at this point, and she talks to Dennis about it behind Arnie's back. They're both pretty suspicious of the car and how Arnie's been acting in his relationship with the car. And they think something supernatural or strange might be going on. They don't outright say that, I don't think, but it's clear that something more is going on that meets the eye. And they determine the only thing to be done is to destroy Christine. So in the conclusion, they are in this do-it-yourself garage. They face off with Christine using a bulldozer. Uh, it's a fairly epic battle with Christine repairing herself whenever they dole out damage, but they finally get the upper hand when they do so much repeated damage with the bulldozer that she can't keep up with her self-repairs. And at some point during the battle, you think Christine is just operating herself, but it's revealed that Arnie is inside the car as he's basically trying to run down his best friend and his girlfriend with the car, trying to kill them. And he gets thrown from the windshield during a crash, and he dies as a shard of glass stabs him. And uh, then the film ends with Dennis and Lee watching the car get compacted to a solid block at a junkyard. Uh, but the camera zooms in on what remains of Christine, and we can see a twitch of activity, letting us know that she intends to repair herself yet again as uh, the needle drops on George Thorogood's bad to the bone. <laughs> For the second time in the movie, I think when the opening credits rolled after the factory scene, we heard that song too. It did, yeah. It came in, in the beginning. Uh, that's yeah. hilarious. Hey, uh, that song, is that from the 50s? No. Uh, boy. I'm that's... embarrassed that I don't know when it's from. I want to say early 80s, though. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting that the movie starts and ends with the song from the 80s, but throughout the movie, when Christine's around, uh, she's like playing songs from the 50s. 60s uh and i was wondering if that was like some commentary on like the death of like that era of music um and like that that's why like ends on like a song from the 80s and like i, I think the last line uh that 
the uh, the the what's the actress? Uh, what's what's her name? Uh, the character of Lee, played yeah, she, by Alexander Paul. Alexander Paul, yeah. I, I think the last line she says is "God, I hate rock and roll," and like the movie kind of ends on that. Yeah, I don't. I don't understand why. Maybe you're onto something there. Yeah, I, I feel like, uh, and I know when I read this book, they they kept quoting a lot of like songs throughout. Uh, so I feel like there might be some commentary around that, that like at the end of like the genre of old rock and roll, and this new like '80s stuff is kicking in now. Sure, like the changing of the guard. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Bad to the Bone was released in 1982. I just looked it up. Ooh, wow, good call. Wasn't that also in Terminator? Oh, you know what, dude? Confession: I've never seen the first Terminator all the way through. Oh, what about the second? You seen the second? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Cool. I think, um, I think that's an important one. Yeah, so I also, there's something in the conclusion about, like, uh, one of the the cop who's we've kind of been introduced to in the movie. I didn't touch on him because he's not super important. He's standing there with Dennis and Lee watching the car get destroyed in the junkyard, and uh, they say something. He's like, you could, you kids did a good job or something. Yeah, and they're like, like heroes. too bad we couldn't save Arnie or something like that. And mm-hmm. I thought that was the biggest flaw with the ending, the, the whole conclusion in the do-it-yourself garage. Mm-hmm. Like, our main character pretty much dies, and his best friend and girlfriend are right there, and there's really not much mourning or not much emotion to it at all. Yeah. It's yeah, just like, we beat Christine. <laughs> it's like, right. okay, but Arnie died. Yeah, yeah. That part feels pretty flat. I, I feel like the whole detective storyline and arc was kind of uh, dumb and unnecessary. You think? I mean, I think it, so. it makes... I almost feel like you have to have it because... People are dying. Well, yeah, yeah, people are dying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think it ratchets up the tension and, and further like cements Arnie as this bad boy where you can't really read him and he's mm-hmm. like talking shit to the police and stuff. I'm okay yeah. with it. Above the law. But then, like, does that conversation at the end imply that the detective is convinced that the car was possessed and that Arnie was, like, overtaken by it or something? That is a really good question. I was thinking that as I described that scene. I was like, so did the, like, was <laughs> the point? police detective then, like, yeah, that car was possessed because... <laughs> yeah. You guys that feels the like car. kind of a jump. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, that, that part really threw me for a loop. Like, is he validating, like, everything that they just went through and uh, agreeing to what we just saw? But that's usually not what happens, right? Yeah, right? Normally the cop is a skeptical one. Yep, yep, exactly. So I'm not totally sure on that one, to be honest. Yeah, me neither. But I agree with you. Like, that, that delivery and, like, that conversation kind of, like, uh, ruined the ending a little bit. Yeah. Agreed, agreed. But what did you think of the movie otherwise? Uh, you know, I thought it had some great strengths. I, I, th- I thought the camera work throughout was really well done. Uh, the set design was great. Soundtrack between John Carpenter's score as well as the old like 50s songs were really well played throughout. And then, yeah, some cool suspenseful kills later on in the film. The early ones I, th- I thought were pretty dumb. Um, but I think at the core, the, it's just kind of a really cool, relatable story about two friends and one like kind of turning and becoming one way that the other one doesn't understand anymore uh, to the point where he has to kill him or something or just tears their friendship apart. So kind of I, I, I enjoy that angle of it. Uh, weaknesses, though, I thought like were um, some of the characters like being like one toner overboard um, or uh, yeah, I thought there could have been a little bit more build up around like finding out that Christine is possessed or that Arnie's like turning into this evil person. So I, at some parts of it felt rushed. But yeah, yeah what, what about you? Rushed is definitely a vibe that I got from the movie at certain times, especially at the conclusion. Um, But yeah, I feel like there was way more for me to enjoy here than I expected. I didn't expect much from a movie about a possessed car. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of John Carpenter's work, like aside from his big titles, even some of his big titles, like I'm just learning I'm not as wild about Carpenter as a lot of people are. So I came into this movie with low expectations and was pleasantly surprised by a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. Probably it sounds like the same things that you were surprised, well, that you enjoyed. The The camera work was great. Um, Donald Morgan, I believe, was the name of the cinematographer. Um, the, even from like the opening when Dennis and Arnie are in the car, there's just like a car mount shot, which is 
I mean, fairly simple, but from a movie from like 1983, it just like looked really good and um, effective. There's just cool camera movement, and there it's is. it seems like a challenging movie to shoot. Just with you've got like a car repairing itself, a car telekinetically like killing people that are far away and choking people, and right. uh, then you've got a car like crashing high speed and driving all over the place it seems like like that 10 million dollar 10 million dollar budget makes sense like this was a big movie yep and all the bigness about it i think really paid off for the most part I, there were times where i mean you were there to hear it i was kind of like ooing and eyeing and be like oh <laughs> like <laughs> there were cool scenes when the car crashes into stuff it's just it's intense. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, flaming car chasing you on the road is legitimately scary. Yeah. And somehow they made the car look pretty scary, like that flaming scene. It kind of looks like a flaming skull in the night, the way it was going, or uh, even like at the, in that final scene with the, in the, in the warehouse, like the way it gets damaged, it almost like looks like its front uh, is, is kind of like a shark or like has like teeth or something. Yes. So, yeah, the really effective uh, use of, of making a car scary. I've never seen something like that. Yeah, there's like a lot of style to some of those scenes. It's really neat. Yeah, yeah, that's really impressive. And I, I love the opening. I love how the story sets itself up for the most part. I love the backbone of Dennis and Arnie's friendship. Dennis mm-hmm. gets put into the hospital for a good chunk of the movie, which kind of sidelines him from the plot, which in a way works out because Dennis is almost the main character at the beginning. Right. And then it pivots to Arnie being the main character as we watch his life kind of fall apart in many ways. Mm -hmm. He's like assaulting his dad. He's being a jerk to his girlfriend. So it's kind of nice to toggle between them as main characters. But Dennis is then also out of the film for a while and we don't get to feel the full impact of the disintegration of their friendship. Yeah, um, it's not like there's nothing there. I still think this movie does a good job developing, like a dude friend relationship. But it's just somewhere along the second half of the movie and the third act, it starts to feel rushed, like he said. Right. I think um, the one scene where they try to give space to like what's going on in their friendship might be that like dialogue scene where they're in the car together, going to like Arnie's house for that party, and Arnie's like way overacting. Um, but he's like explaining like what, how he's fallen in love with this and like why he like feels like him. It's like the world is, uh, against him and it's like him in this car against the world or something. Right. Um, I, I thought that was like trying to put like a bow around like, oh, this is someone you thought you knew, but they've changed so much or something. Right. But I, yeah. Right. They, they could, they could have gone a lot farther with that. Right. And showing like the emotional toll it's taking on. Dennis. Yeah. And I think really even that third, the like final showdown with Christine and the bulldozer, I think maybe that retroactively makes me feel like have they had they given more honor to Arnie's death and their relationships, relationship dynamics in that showdown. Mm-hmm. I think I might be saying singing a different song. I think that would retroactively make me think they did a good job with it the whole movie. Sure. Um, yep. Because I wasn't really thinking like, hey, they dropped this completely. Um, or anything like that. It was just by the end of the film, I, I thought it was not given the attention it deserved. And it's definitely because of the showdown and just the cheesiness of them standing there with the cop at the end. Like, <laughs> you guys are heroes. Well, a real hero could have <laughs> saved Arnie. Like, yeah, it, it wasn't, it, it feels like they had like an hour to shoot that scene. They got it and moved on. And Right, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. which is fine. And I, I guess you don't need more, but it's just something about it that was like, no love given to what should have been like what was an emotional backbone of the story i know i know that would have been so nice to see that kind of pay out because uh, yeah. Yeah, you're kind of invested in that um uh, did you feel arnie's transformation throughout the film was uh believable and it was like iterative or did it, it was like a night and day like the, the beginning he's like the super uh, geezer kind of guy and then like all of a sudden like within like two scenes he's just like this uh, crazy badass dude or was it did it feel like were you bought into like how slowly it happened I feel like the pace of how that happened was okay maybe a little fast but I don't yeah. have too many big complaints like and there were some hints along the way too that um, 
like Dennis asked Lee on a date in the library at one point, and she said, I can't, I've already got a date. And then later you learn it's Arnie. Yeah. So it, it does develop gradually, in my opinion. Maybe it's a little rushed, but yeah, um, there's a lot going on in the movie. So I, yeah. I, I didn't have any complaints, but what about you? Did you feel it was a little too fast? Uh, you know, I, I thought it was, but, you know, I, I kind of went back and, like, saw some of the scenes and, like, the red jacket doesn't come out till a little bit later. So, like, he starts to become uh, a little bit, like, I think first he's just, like, very confident and then, like, starts becoming more of an asshole and a dick uh, as, as it progresses. Right. So, I, I think sure. you're right. It, it does happen bit by bit. Yeah. Um... Would, uh, would it, I'm, I'm curious, like, films like this, you'd never consider them slashers, right? Hmm. I don't consider them slashers, but I feel like we've been discussing this a lot lately. A lot of horror films operate structurally as slashers. And I think that's because, as we've also mentioned before, I think slashers structurally operate as monster movies. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a baddie, and then people start dropping off until the big showdown at the end. So it works like a slasher. I wouldn't call it a slasher. Okay, yeah. Yeah, to throw it in agree. our little possessed objects bucket. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of unconventional to call it a slasher. Um, and then uh, the other question I had for you, like, um, looking at who the villain was in this movie, was it Christine or was it um, this dude, Arnie? Good question. I, I think a little bit of both there. I think so, too. Yep. We've yeah. all... I'm, Starting to repeat ourselves a lot now, but I'll, I'll repeat again that we've said that scripts are supposed to be stronger when they've got a, a human baddie and a like evil monster baddie if you're making a monster movie. So sure, but Arnie's kind, kind of, of a combo. you know he's not necessarily just a villain. He's he's a, our hero who's descended into madness. Yeah, I think so. And in like uh, a lot of that, you can point to like the bullying that he endures earlier on, and where and his he's parents from. are awful. Oh yeah, yeah. He's getting it from all over, so it kind of feels like for a second you like feel good good about him, but then yeah, it kind of drives him to this crazy person. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it feels organic. It's very extreme, but they do a good job of letting us know how Arnie's got pressure at various different elements of his life, and really, Dennis is kind of the only thing he has until he meets Lee, and that right. relationship isn't even. I'm not even sure how fulfilling it is for him because it seems like it's just part of his ego trip that he's on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's he's really all about the Christine relationship. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. Zero to five jealous inanimate objects. What do you give this movie? <laughs> uh, I gave it three jealous inanimate objects. Uh, just because, yeah, I, I thought it was really well done and produced. I thought John Carpenter did a great job. But, yeah, I think parts of it were rushed where I would have liked to see more story developed there. And, uh, yeah, that relationship between the friends really, I, w- I would have loved that to see, uh, take the, have that take more of a front seat in this movie. Um, but, yeah, three on my end. How about you? Nice carp on there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have all the same... Uh, God, again, we're always in alignment. I have all the same pros and cons as you, but I give it a 3.5 just because I feel like visually I'm just... I think it's so awesome how this movie holds up 40 years later. I think in many moments of the film, and it's an exciting thrill ride, in many moments of the film, it's a touching drama about friends. And mm-hmm. they drop the ball a little bit on various elements, but... Uh, there's a lot that works here, way more that works than I was expecting there to be. So sure. <laughs> I do really enjoy the movie. It's something I feel like I could really easily rewatch and even grow my affections for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's got its flaws. I'm glad we watched it, Tyler. Me too. Yeah, it seems like a classic. That's definitely worth watching. A great popcorn film. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm really like, I know we were kind of middle of the road on The Thing, and uh, I'm sure they lived too. We were, in, I, 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 were we crazy about that one? Um, I think we were, uh, thought it was average. Yeah, yeah. But these movies, like, even though, like, they're kind of average, I'm really, like, John Carpenter's, like, coming to the top of my list in terms of directors, uh, because his work on these films, I think, uh, are, like, some of the best parts of it. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, good good to knock out another one of his films. I also think if you were a kid in the 80s and you were watching his films, like, more than once, I could see how they'd really grow on you. Oh, yeah. Even the thing, and I know everyone hates this because we're just, 
we like the thing, but we're not as gung-ho about it as everybody else. I, I do think it could my affections for it could grow if I watched it more frequently. Yeah, I agree too. And seeing like more Carpenter stuff, being able to pick up on his signature stuff, uh, I think helps as well. I think he's just not great with... I don't know. I'm tempted to say he's not great with characters and with story, but mm. I don't know. I'm sure many people will disagree with that, but... Maybe relationships too, right? Like character puns and stuff. I think that's part of it. I think it's relationships specifically. Maybe that's what you hit the nail on the head with. And I know that in Halloween, that's not the strongest script in the world, but I know Deborah Hill helped a lot with uh, the girls and with their dialogue with each other. So Mm. I think her help might have helped that movie be an even stronger film. So that's easily my favorite of his. Yeah, yeah, I think mine too so far. Uh, let's see. Anything else? No, that's all I got. Okay. Well, that has been it for our discussion on Christine. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can go to horrormovieclub.com. Click on the social links drop down and you'll find links to Facebook and Twitter where we announce what show we're going to be covering next week or what movie we're covering next week. There's also a link to our Discord server where there's plenty of people talking about movies all the time, lots of horror movie fans and listeners of the show. So jump on there and start talking to people about horror. If you want some Horror Movie Club swag, you can Google Horror Movie Club Coaster Set, and that will take you to Amy May Pop Art's Etsy shop. She designed our logo, and you can buy either our coaster set or a lot of other great horror art from her. If you use the discount code MOVIECLUB, you'll get 20% off. Um, let's see. We got a Patreon site, patreon.com slash horrormovieclub. You'll find some bonus content on there. And any horrormovieclub.com has a, you know, a great list of all our episodes, too, if it's easier than scrolling through your podcast player. There's even some old written reviews on there. We haven't kept up with it in a long time. But if you're bored, you can go check out horrormovieclub.com. Until next time, if your friend stops wearing their glasses, go ahead and assume the worst and just completely destroy their vehicle with a bulldozer to be on the safe side. (laughs) I think that holds up in court. (laughs) Your Honor, he stopped wearing his glasses. (laughs) Look at this guy. (laughs) 